This is Designing for Humanity, a podcast by SY Partners about designing a future that's made for all of us and the best in us. I'm Rhi Norgard, and I'm talking with some of the most interesting people I know about how we as designers can tackle the most complex challenges our society faces right now. How can we use design to reimagine the ways we interact with each other and with the world? I'm here to start the conversation about what new ways of thinking and methods are needed. Today, I have Suganda Gupta and Shannon Finnegan joining me in the studio. Suganda Gupta is a textile artist and maker who uses a variety of materials, everything from paper to wool, to create a holistic art experience that spans the senses. Shannon Finnegan's work explores disability cultures and access through different modes of design, art, and writing. She's done projects with the Invisible Dog, Friends of the Highline, and the Wasaig Project, where she created the Anti-Stairs Club Lounge. Suganda and Shannon are both with fellows, a program run by the Disabled List that places creative disabled talent with top design studios and agencies in New York City for a three-month fellowship. With is expanding to San Francisco in early 2019, which is insanely exciting. I'm so happy to have Suganda and Shannon here to talk about their experience with art and design. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. Suganda, what was your process to understand yourself as both a designer and an advocate? I think I was following design throughout my life because it was not a choice. It was just a way of surviving. So I have albinism, which is a genetic condition that affects my vision and makes me really light sensitive. And also I don't have pigment in my skin, eyes and hair. And so I always stood out of the crowd especially growing in India. I really started understanding design when I was enrolled in undergrad, which was in National Institute of Design, India. And there was a lot of pressure because it's a very prestigious school and very few students. When I was faced with the challenge of competing with those students and really surviving, that is when I started thinking about how I can change the way I'm doing my tasks. It was really difficult to look at a ruler, for example. Like, I could not even see the steel ruler because it reflected so much light. And so my professor suggested to me, because I was so frustrated and so sad, he said, why don't you design your own ruler and make one with cardboard so that you don't have to keep on measuring again and again? And it was a really simple idea, but it was really daunting for me at the time. Like, oh my God, now I have to create a ruler. But really, as I thought about it, by the end of my undergrad, I realized that it's really my approach that I need to redesign. I can do anything as long as I approach it in my way Mm. and ignore what others are doing or what the trends are saying. And so I think that's really when I understood design. That's amazing. You had to make it your own process to really make it matter. And I want to ask you, Shannon, as a visual artist, looking at some of your bodies of work, I think the idea of, of activism is in there and probably has been with you for a long time. But I'd love to hear about your journey putting together your art or your idea of making with advocacy. I think for me, it really started from my own experience. I have cerebral palsy, and I grew up really isolated from other disabled people. And it wasn't really until I was in college that 
I even understood that lots of things that I had thought of as very personal individual experiences were actually shared experiences that were shaped by culture and larger societal forces. And so that was a really eye-opening moment. Later on, I was starting to integrate thinking about disability into my work, but often in ways that I think other people wouldn't necessarily have seen directly. In the past few years, I think just looking around at representations of disability in mainstream media, I was just like, there's really nothing that feels like my experience at all in terms of capturing the nuance of my kind of day-to-day experience that, you know, some things are hard, but some things are funny or some things are weird or some things are really interesting. And so the start for me was like, how can I at least add my experience to some of the narratives and representations that are out there and kind of start building connections from there? So what are points of connections between my experience and the experience of other disabled people? What are points of connection between my experience and the experience of non-disabled people? I think we should focus on the recent project of yours to understand what your art is about. A recent project that I've been excited about is making benches and seating. I've started with making seating for museum and exhibition spaces, really kind of starting from my experiences of of visiting exhibitions and just how hard it is on my body to move through those spaces and So basically, it's a line of benches that have text on them. So an example would be a bench that says, this exhibition has asked me to stand for too long, sit if you agree, or one that says just, I'd rather be sitting, sit if you agree. And part of this project comes out of the idea that, for me, a lot of accessibility and access measures are going to take a lot of really radical change and are really long-term projects, but some things seem so doable, like more seating in museums feels like such an achievable goal. It does. I agree. (laughs) That's so amazing. It feels like like we could make it happen. Yeah. 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 Um, This project is also connected to some thinking that I've done about just forms of protest or forms of, I guess, advocacy and thinking about how we often think about protest in very ableist terms where we're talking about standing up for something or marching, but there's also a really rich history of seating and and sit-ins as protest. Um, and so I like the way that the benches offer kind of a voice while also offering comfort and rest. So, Gata, do you think you could describe for us either a current project or something that you think will help people who are listening, given that this is a podcast and and your work is highly experiential? Uh, When I came to grad school to SCAD, I had the clear idea and vision that I want to take forward what, what I learned from my undergrad and really research and delve deep into it. And at that time, I was really thinking about disability as an overarching theme. 
but in my very first quarter at SCAD in my artistry class I researched an artist known as Judith Scott who was disabled and who had down syndrome and was institutionalized for 35 years but her work eventually as a fiber artist really got recognition and really communicated with the audience so that's when I really started thinking about like what are other artists or individuals doing to use their disability as their strength because really that that is what i found through my journey and so i started reflecting on myself and i found that my strongest senses or my strengths basically are sense of touch and the sense of sound because that really eases me in general to navigate or to even work um especially when i'm reading and there was a lot of reading in grad school uh, when i started listening to things it made it a lot easier for me to learn so my thesis body of work which i titled as sensory textiles was a way of creating art through textiles that can be experienced by a wider audience through their senses like touch sound smell and of course also sight uh and so this way i not only wanted to offer a broader experience for the audience to experience art in a in a new way that doesn't inhibit just looking at it but also touching it or smelling it because what i learned was that we gather information around the world through all our senses not just through our sight so why not let everyone experience art through all their senses and just like shannon i too have difficulties like when i go to exhibitions or museums because all the tools are designed to be navigated through sight and it's really challenging for me to appreciate the artworks completely because i'm never able to read the titles in even the audio devices they have you really have to look at the numbers and it's really not designed f- just purely based on audio it's not thoughtfully designed i would say and so that's what i try to do for my thesis show i was associated with savanna center for blind and low vision and i often went and met their clients and got feedback from them so i created a lot of textiles that have a lot of different textures through different fibers so when they came to my show i also had and my artist statement printed in braille so they can understand and appreciate what my thought process is without me necessarily having to tell them or having to read it to them so they could be independent and it was a really fascinating experience in my thesis show because everyone could touch irrespective of whether you're sighted or unsighted deaf or not deaf you know if you can't hear you can smell if you can't see you can touch so i really wanted to offer a diverse experience So it's interesting when you describe an audio guide as really being a visual experience supported by audio. Why does that happen, you think? I think that when we design things, we don't really consider a holistic approach while we are designing. We often are very narrow when we are designing something, and I think that's the problem. Another thing that I feel that is lacking is inclusion from the start. Really like how many disability study courses have you ever had in school how many art history classes include artists with disabilities or visionary art for that matter really rare to find those things and so when we lack inclusion at every step we don't even think about the things that are existing that we are ignorant about we continue to be ignorant 
And the other thing that through my own life experience I found is that when people encounter something different, they ignore it and are indifferent to it because they don't know how to deal with it or they just are arrogant sometimes. So I feel that if there's inclusion in society, in everything, in in friendships, in including people like a diverse population from a very young age, then people would be more accepting to change. Mm-hmm. And so it really starts from Hmm. scratch from the roots Mm -hmm. I think that throughout history the problems that we faced or the problems that the world has faced are because of the tendency of human beings to discriminate whether it's caste color sex creed race and so disability is no different and it's really ironic that even today we segregate people with disabilities so much. It's like us and them. Mm-hmm. Whereas to me, I think everybody has a disability. Mm-hmm. But it's just that the people whose disabilities are more visible carry the burden of being called disabled and carrying that label throughout. Whereas even perfection is a disability to me, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Hmm. That's fascinating. Shannon? Well, just something that I thought of in terms of the audio guide example and something that I think I see a lot in terms of solutions is, to me, it's suffering a little bit from a kind of universal design framework that one audio guide should both augment the experience of sighted visitors and also be the primary mode of engagement for visitors who aren't sighted or aren't learning visually and that there might be a way to integrate those two experiences, but it sounds to me like that's not working currently. And that's something that I'm really interested in is how a lot of times I think the needs of disabled people have to be justified through broader good because of kind of the popularity of universal design and the success of things like curb cuts, or but that sometimes... We just need to design for a specific experience, and it might mean that a design solution really is for a smaller group of people or even one person. You're just describing the distinction between getting it right and really serving one person's need versus believing that you could serve everyone's needs with the same process at all times. And the more you know about different modes of human experience, the better you can account for them. If it's something that exists in your life, and it always did, then you widen your aperture and and your sensibility naturally. With the with fellowship, we're sort of going into the middle of the process. We're starting post-design education, but still really trying to change the dynamic between input, who gets to provide input, and who ultimately creates the output and solutions. And so I would love to hear from your perspective what that looks like and what can we do to make it better? Something that I've noticed coming to design environments is that I think design is often searching for this elegant, smooth, easy, effortless solution. I think that's part of what The appeal of universal design is like, oh, if we just think about or design for a specific need, like we're going to make everything better. And there are great examples of that happening. But I think I'm interested in the ways that there might never be a 
a simple solution. Like there might always be a lot of complexity. It might be really hard. And so I think of my role in some ways as bringing friction to some of the design process and kind of pointing to complexity and trying to expand complexity when I feel like a lot of what's happening is about simplifying and distilling. I was working with Liz Jackson, who started the Disabled List, which started the WITH Fellowship Program on designing a logo for the WITH Fellowship Program. And that process brought up a lot of interesting conversations around to what extent do we want disabled people to be able to integrate into design environments and in what ways do we want to continue to kind of stick out and just through kind of conversations about what that logo should look like. I think there's one way of thinking about it, which is design has not been inclusive for us and and kind of embracing an outsider status where there's another approach, which is if this fellowship is about kind of pathways to design and creating entry points, then This program needs to be legible in a design context and look, quote-unquote, official or, quote-unquote, professional in a certain way. And so it was interesting trying to combine some of those elements. And what we ended up doing, I think, is kind of marrying the two of those, or that's the hope, I think, of, of kind of creating something that feels designed but still has a little bit of friction and is pushing back a little bit on what has been considered good design. So we have a general idea of a design process that we learn in school, right? We research, we ideate, we prototype, we get some feedback, hopefully, (laughs) we're fine. Does the process that you're experiencing, working with other people in industry and in design, is that working? How can we look at that from your perspective? For me, I think something that I've been noticing is around the research piece, There's a lot of general context Mm. that designers are missing about disabled people, about our history, about disabled people as an identity category, as a political category. And that's something that even I think needs to come in before a specific project because it's kind of much broader. It needs to be in everything, I would say, that, that designers are working on. And It can't just be kind of research around a specific problem or project. And so that's that's something that I've been thinking about is how can there be more communication around these really fundamental pieces of of what disability is and how it has operated both historically and now and making sure that that's something that people are learning about and is on their radar. That's really helpful. And I think the other part of that is who. Who's in the room? Who's on the project? Who do we listen to and and who executes? And so having a person with the experience of being a disabled artist or designer is helpful. It makes me wonder what other voices we need to add into the process. Subject matter experts are not necessarily expert in life or (laughs) in representations of, of people's experience. And in the design field, we're very good at projectizing solutions, you know, that are different from our own experience. And and I think what I'm interested in exploring now is, like, how do we put ourselves back into the work and, and really use our own life experience? And so you need many people's life experience. Suganda, I'd love to hear from you also about the process that you've experienced in your 
fellowship and mm-hmm. how if we are to make more inclusive products and experiences how do we also adjust the process i think that something that we are missing is the human interaction we are so heavily dependent on google that we forget that there are books and if we remember the books then we forget there are still people i feel like we need to have more open dialogues more platform where we can really connect with people on a one to one level or in a group i felt this way because i was a speaker in a conference embrace conference where i was talking about what opportunities come out from disability and how my disability is really my superpower mm-hmm. and so i found that when i spoke openly about my disability and when i shared my experiences more people opened up to me and a lot of people asked me questions about how they can collaborate with people with disabilities because there's such a big disconnect as to how they can approach a person with disability and that's because of the way the society is functioning and how disconnected we are because we are constantly in our own bubbles so i think that's the need we really have i'm like how can we have a real human interaction and have an environment where we can induce that conversation and have a free flowing dialogue yeah i think what what just kind of came out of that for me is thinking about how do we build the support for disabled people to share their experiences because i've had moments where i'm walking down the street and someone asks me a question about my disability and they're asking for this very personal story and so i don't want to be in a position where i have to share always but i think building structures like with where in this scenario that's part of my role is using that part of my experience and sharing that kind of experience and yeah i think that's really important in terms of the sustainability of having different voices in the room is it's making sure that there's support around that and that people don't feel tired or exhausted of revealing themselves and advocating for themselves and the other groups that they're a part of that's a good point i mean i can hear from what, both what you're saying sugandha the the opportunity you give for many people to express themselves going first if you will and letting them into your life and what you're going through is very beautiful but it's also a big responsibility and not something that's always possible or should even be expected one of the things that i'm finding in this podcast is that a useful shared language and starting point lets us know that we appreciate some of the same things that we're interested in exploration and questions that allows you to connect more easily that's perhaps the value that we're missing is the uniqueness the friction the point of view that doesn't have a voice if it's not there in the room and part of creation how can we prepare ourselves and how can we prepare people to ask better questions and not be worried that needs can't be met or something So God, it makes me want to ask you about your experience as a with fellow. For me, I think what it's doing is it's really bridging the gap between the abled and disabled world that the intervention is happening because of lack of inclusion. And I think for me, it's been a great platform not only to talk about these issues which I'm really really passionate about, but also to give me access because 
Unfortunately, there is a lot of hidden discrimination in the world. And I feel that I'm really privileged that here in U.S., I found that people are much more open to talk about different issues and and different scenarios and situations. But still, when I came and I started applying for jobs in the industry, if I would openly tell that I have a vision disability or if I have albinism, uh, out of ignorance, a lot of people would ask me if I can see color and it would often lead to the conversation not going forward. And but through with fellow, I was able to get that access and that gap was bridged. I think that the important question is to ask the employers who are enrolling with fellows, how normal are we for them? And that would really help to really gain understanding about how different we are and how different we are not because we're all different in many ways. And so even though I acknowledge that there are some quote-unquote disabilities that need more assistance or that need more help, but they're all special in their own ways and they bring something unique to the table. Shannon, you look like you're thinking about something there. Yeah, I mean, I think any with fellowship is is going to involve an element of unknown, right? It's a person and an organization coming together who don't know each other and don't know how to collaborate. And I think something that I've been grateful for is that there's been a lot of flexibility and willingness to be uncertain about what the collaboration will look like or exactly how everyone will benefit from the partnership. And I think that's left a lot of flexibility and space to observe and learn and and even just kind of have more casual conversations that I think have been really fruitful and interesting. So it's as much and maybe allowing for conversation to happen because you're actually together in an environment that would stimulate that versus only being project-specific and thinking about it so directly. Yeah. I mean, I think going back to what Suganda had said, like, disabled people have just been so isolated and so separate for so long that just having a disabled person as part of the organization in a way that the organization is kind of open and listening to has a lot of value to it. I feel like the problem is that we are always thinking about when and how to communicate about our disability. And I think design and any venture, whether it's business or whether it's design, it always starts from the human communication and how we connect and form relationships with one another. And I think with a platform like WIDH, it's really significant and it's really helpful that we can actually be free and not worry about when I should talk about my albinism or when I should talk about my XYZ disability. So I feel like that's the environment that needs to be cultivated more. How can we stop thinking about how we communicate about our disability? Because even though that identifies us, that doesn't define us. I think I often have the experience going into situations with new people or where I'm navigating unfamiliar circumstances where I really want to be likable and I want everything to kind of go smoothly and everyone to get along. And I think the fellowship is designed to be a space where there can be authentic dialogue about different experiences 
And so I think it's interesting to kind of reflect on that as you enter the process. This is an amazing conversation. I think it's really helpful on many levels. I have a, a question that that I like to ask on this podcast around your basic orientation towards life. I like to ask if people feel hopeful for the future, if they're optimistic, because saying that we're people who solve problems would almost indicate that you have some idea that you could affect the future and that it could be better. Designers are very quick to say, in general, that they are optimistic. It's almost like a knee-jerk response. So I want to keep asking that. And Shannon, are you an optimistic person? I think of myself as an artist. I generally think the art world is a very pessimistic place. I was thinking about this on the way in today because I was actually using a tote bag that I have from the organization Triple Canopy. And on one side, it says bright pessimism. And on the other side, it says dark optimism. (laughs) I actually really identify more with the bright pessimism side of it, that I feel very cynical, I think, about a lot of the work that we have ahead to make the world into a place that's more aligned with our values. But I do have a sense of lightness, and I definitely find moments of joy and enjoyment within that. I'm all about the optimism and the positivity and excitement, because I think it's really hard to move forward in life in general without that. And I think that as a person living with disability and in general, as someone who's researched about individuals with disabilities and artists with disabilities, I think it's really unique that the more hardship we have in life, the more mature we become, an optimistic attitude, that resilience to just face it and not hide from it can really help you think beyond what you feel like you can think about. So yeah, I think that the future is really bright. I feel really privileged that we are in a time when we are talking about it, even if it's a little late, even if it's taken us a couple of centuries to talk about <laughs> it. I still feel happy that we are we are having this discussion. 